Good day to our listeners here at The Middle Podcast. My name is Jim Nelson, and again, I get to be your host for the next 15 minutes or so as we talk through the Word of God together. This production, as always, is a digital ministry of Living Word Church in Oak Harbor, Washington. If you're a first-time listener to this podcast, I just right off the bat, I want to say thank you for finding us and taking some time out of your busy schedule to tune in. It's great. I'm obviously also grateful for those who tune in regularly for each of our episodes, and regardless of which camp you're in today, I'm just hopeful that this is a time of blessing and an opportunity for God's Holy Spirit to tap into the middle of our hectic weeks and remind us of the love and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So just to start off with, I heard a couple of statistics this week that kind of they kind of play into what I want to do today, but they certainly caught my attention, and I thought that you might be interested in hearing these also. So first we're going to talk about Christian literature. According to a Christian blogger, and his name is Jeremy Boma, the Christian publishing market is a $1.2 billion market, about 10% of all of the U.S. publishing market share. This is an interesting follow-on fact that goes along with that. So big dollars in Christian publishing. On average, Christians buy more books and spend more money on books than the average American reader. Much of this market is tailored to an evangelical audience, not all, but much of it is. So in other words, the books we are reading are intended to provoke and to motivate us to be out in our communities, out in our schools, out in our workplaces, embodying and heralding and demonstrating the love of Christ for others in our lives, okay? Here's the second statistic. It's a bit more sobering. Only about two in 10 Christians actively seek to create or pursue those opportunities to do that embodying and heralding and demonstrating. Two of 10. Now, it doesn't mean the other eight are doing nothing. A majority of those eight, six out of eight, say that their faith conversations happen not so planned or expected, but unexpectedly. That's great. I get it. Many of mine are that way also. They just unexpectedly fall into an opportunity to have a conversation. I just thought that the juxtaposition was really, really interesting. Our desire for content is voracious. We want it all. We want to soak up this call to Christ-like living, but the purposeful and intentional part of that desire, statistically, doesn't keep up with that intake. In other words, the output is way less than the intake. So where does this fit into the middle podcast? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know exactly how it fits in. Maybe it's just we can provide a conversation starter. Maybe just to remind us that while we should be very purposeful and intentional in our worship on a Sunday morning, and that's where we're pulling from most weeks is the previous week's sermon, we should also live with purpose and intention on a Wednesday or a Thursday in the classroom while standing around at soccer practice, at the coffee shop. But here's another question that came up this week, and and it's really interesting. It really hit me in a in a deep spot, quite honestly. The question was, why don't Christians actively seek these kinds of opportunities? Now, the number four answer, the number four most cited answer was, I'm too busy. Oh, 
I hear you. We are busy. I'm busy. We are busy, busy people. I've often thought negatively about my busyness. I've got to slow down. I've got to say no to things. I've got to take time off. And, and some of that may be true, and that may be needed. But here's another part of that truth. I never have taken my own advice. I'm just as busy as I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, despite all the commitments I've told myself to slow down. I've just never done it. And I'm confident that that sounds familiar to some of, at least some of you out in the audience. This week I was challenged in a podcast that I was listening to. The challenge was to kind of embrace the busyness and think about where all that activity puts you in a typical day. Think of all the different settings, all of the different people who are around you and all of the context that comes with that busyness. The challenge in that is to look around, be intentional, and engage those around you. They're there, right? They're right there. Start a conversation, introduce yourself. Who knows, maybe something really cool comes up. All right, it is time to get back to what I planned for the podcast this week. A little bit off topic, but related. We are spending our fall series in biblical parallels, those parts of Jesus' teaching or examples that he gives us throughout the Gospels where maybe we go, hmm, wait a minute, maybe I've heard that before, and then encourage us to go on a biblical exploration to answer that question, where have I heard that before? And hopefully through this approach, we'll deepen our understanding of the nature and character of Christ and how his model of kingdom living is not necessarily something new, but was intended throughout God's relationship with his faithful followers. We'll be in John chapter 8 this week. That's where we'll start out. At dawn he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and Jesus sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one con condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I command you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, first, confession time. I'm really excited about this week's parallel because this story is one of the first that really motivated me to the depth and complexity of our scriptures. It was 1995, so I'm a 27-year-old brand new Christian, and I just wanted to know as much as I can, as fast as I can, about this renewed way of living. I, I was lucky. I had a Southern Baptist Navy chaplain who was just discipling like crazy, feeding me. I'm going to... I'm going to say almost, well, not, not daily, I guess, but at least three times a week we were together in some capacity or another, and I've got tons of questions, right? 
So we read through this story in John 8, and he asks, you know, basically, what do you think Jesus is writing in this in the dirt? Well, of course, I have no good answer, right? The storyteller in John does not even elaborate on what is written. It could be doodling. It could be some profound wisdom. It could be the sins that each of these men had committed in their past. That was a common one that, that we talked about. But it could be anything, right? So Pastor Kim took all of that in, and he told me about this discipline that looks at how the Bible treats repeated themes and repeated settings and repeated phrases and words. Now, that just kind of all blew me away at the time, and I had no idea what he was talking about. So he pointed me to Daniel chapter 5. Not too long ago, at Living Word, Drew took us through some of the stories of Daniel and his friends in exile. That, that was a great series. We talked our way through some of the most well-known experiences of these characters trying to remain faithful while living under an extreme social and religious and political pressures, right? We did not cover chapter five in that series, so if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to pick it up this week, read it in its entirety. Um, but in the meantime, I'll just kind of run through the high points. We're talking about King Belshazzar now. King Belshazzar, from what best I can tell from researching this week, is he was a co-king or a lesser king, a second, I guess, in command, you could say, of the Babylonian Empire under what appears to be his dad or perhaps his granddad, King Nebuchadnezzar. He decides to have a huge party, lots of wine, lots of food, lots of high-ranking guests from throughout the kingdom. And just as I'm kind of playing that through in my head, I'm just thinking about it. He's just a big shot rot, right? He wants to emphasize his power and his influence by showing off to those who have some influence in the kingdom, but on a far lesser scale than his, his influence. They need to be reminded, basically, who the boss is. So he brings in the fabulous gold and silver and precious things that had been plundered from the temple in the sacking of Jerusalem. They drank from these, they ate from these, and I'm sure kind of in a mocking spirit, they praised their Babylonian gods and belittled the sacred things of Israel's God. As this raucous party is going along, out of nowhere, a hand appears and a finger carves a message into the plaster and one of the walls around the party goers. Now, if suddenly a hand appeared to me uh, and a finger started writing on my hotel wall, I'd flip out, I'd, I'd be just freaking out. And just as you might expect, that's pretty much what the king does too. It says this, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. This guy was scared and rightfully so in my opinion. So he goes out, he calls on those professionals in his court that dealt with the mystical and the supernatural, and he calls them together and asks them, what does this all mean? They don't know. And the queen overhears their conversation, and she recommends our old friend Daniel. He can do this kind of interpretation. So in comes Daniel. Daniel gives Belshazzar a little bit of a lecture based on lessons he should have learned from the previous king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he was mocking and ridiculing Israel's God. It didn't turn out great. But finally, Daniel gives the interpretation. He says this, many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found deficient or lacking. And then finally, Perez, 
your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes. Definitely something Belshazzar does not want to hear. And it just, as the story goes on and finishes, he loses the kingdom to his enemies that very night. That's the story. Back to John 8. This could be, and I have to emphasize, could be what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Many, many tekel pairs. Because if you think of the similarities, you think of the behaviors of the, and the intentions, I guess, of uh, the religious leaders who had just dragged this woman caught in the act of adultery. So first off, they were breaking their own religious law by only bringing her. They should have brought the man in also, but they didn't. So they were obviously negligent in their responsibilities to begin with. So that, it really wasn't to judge this woman. But this point doesn't really matter to the religious leaders because they want to trick Jesus. It was a trap. Now, he doesn't fall for the trap. He's good at that. He doesn't fall for their trap. Instead, he just writes in the dirt stands back up and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bent back down and began writing in the dirt again. Now, I do not know what Jesus wrote. I don't, and as one author I read this week put it, if it had been so important to the story, then John would have recorded it, but he didn't. So maybe it's not what Jesus wrote, but the manner in which he did it with his finger. Now that does have a direct link back to Daniel, the finger of God. What he wrote isn't the parallel, but the manner in which he drew his finger through the dirt might be it. The finger of God is found a couple of times in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and actually it's twice in Exodus we hear this phrase. The first is when the Egyptian equivalent of Belshazzar's magicians and sorcerers cannot replicate some of the 10 plagues on Egypt, and they say, this is the finger of God. The second time we see it is obviously much more well known is when Moses watches the finger of God carve the commandments into the stone tablets on Mount Sinai. So there's a couple of parallels we can pull from to get it back, to get more context to the John 8 story. And to summarize a ton of reading I did this week, on this parallel finger of God theme, I'll use a recent article written by Pastor Don Johnston, who spent nearly four decades pastoring and ministering in the Midwest, and he shares these four observations. The finger of God in Egypt reveals his preeminence, in other words, his ultimate authority over all creation, even the mankind conceived, mankind made up gods of Egypt. That's what the story is, is about, is God's ultimate power over these lesser gods. Secondly, the finger of God reveals his word as seen on Mount Sinai. We as followers should be cherishing and reading and studying and sharing his wisdom revealed to us in scripture. Thirdly, the finger of God represents his justice. Now, obviously, whether what Jesus wrote in the dirt or the manner that he did it, it had an impact on all of those who were accusing the woman. Perspective, I think, is a great word for it. What he did gave them some perspective, that their perspective was impacted because whatever Jesus did, it forced them to look inward. They're really good at pointing outward, pointing fingers outward. Whatever he did in that dirt, they knew they harbored sin, and he just got them to look inward. And finally, it reveals Jesus's passion. Read through the Gospels and note how many times his hands and fingers are mentioned 
in his work that he does. And it's quite a bit, actually. But they were always at work, healing, redeeming, and restoring what is rightfully his. All right. I pray that we can do likewise in our daily walk this week. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another parallel story. God bless you all.